Yes, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us here on INC Live for the UFC 290 preview show. My name is Carl Bainbridge, and I am joined by the man on the right-hand side of my screen. He is the Elon Musk to my Mark Zuckerberg. It's Joe Neal. Joe, thank you very much for joining us. Glad to be here. Uh, I'm glad to be. I should have thought of a tag team, but that's okay because I always got one handy. Uh, I'm glad to be the, I guess I'm Jeff, uh, to your Matt Hardy. Well, I like Matt Moore, so I'm going to take that one. I grew up loving Jeff, but as an adult, the correct answer is Matt. Yeah. And, I hope, <laughs> <laughs> and I hope that you can enjoy the show as well here on INC Live, because this promises to be one of the better preview shows, hopefully, in terms of our performance. Hopefully, it's going to be one of the better preview shows that we've been looking forward to. Um, the UFC has been fairly rough when it comes to the sort of marquee events over the past couple of months. But UFC 290, it's July, it's International Fight Week, and normally when it comes to the July card, the UFC do pull out the stops. So before we actually get onto the card itself, Joe, I just want to bring up some of those sort of passing comments which are made in the introduction there, which is mm -hmm. obviously International Fight Week. The UFC try and make a big deal about this one. They have the Hall of Fame ceremony. Uh, they usually stack the card with their big marquee stars. Do you feel that UFC 290 lives up to the International Fight Week sort of standing? Like, bearing in mind in previous years that we've had, like, John Jones versus Daniel Cormier there, uh, DC versus Stipe, champ versus champ. Would you say this card lives up to it? So, in terms of name value, uh, I think Volk really hit the mainstream this year because a lot of people, me included, thought he beat Islam Makachev. He should be double champ in my mind, personally. So I think he, I feel like he kind of did break into mainstream with that. But in terms of name value, you don't really have much else. I mean, Robert Whitaker is the man, and he has been forever. But I feel like he's not like a uh, a mainstream ideal target, like a John Jones, or uh, like even going back in the day, Anderson Silva. You know, um, Chael Sonnen was huge. International Fight Week as well, kind of like challenger. Um, so in terms of name value, maybe not. Uh, I mean, it's two title fights, which is what they do use to help boost it for the casual audiences. But if you're a hardcore fan, um, I, I said this earlier before we started recording, this was one of my favorite cards I've ever had to research uh, in, like, or just, it was so much fun. I mean, any excuse I can get to watch the Davis and Figueiredo quadrilogy again was, with Moreno was incredible. And, like... It, it was so much fun, like reviewing this. So, in terms of like matchups, this is a this is on paper an S plus card for me. I would say I hold it in a higher standing than I did last year's, which was that um, Izzy yeah. versus Cannonier card. That, that card wasn't great. Like and like looking at it at the time, I remember being like, "It's gonna be fun," but it it was okay, if I remember correctly. But that main event was rough. I will say as well that one thing I think the UFC have done very well, and obviously we'll talk about the prelims in a lot more detail later on, is they have their... Obviously, this has been a big year for Mexican MMA with the three world champions in three months. And I feel the UFC, they've sort of taken that on board because we have a lot of Mexican talent on the undercard here, which I think is a good sign to see. Obviously, we've got Shevchenko versus Grasso, which is going to be happening later on. So even though we don't have Fight Night Mexico... I feel the UFC have done almost the second best thing, giving Mexican fighters a mm. showcase on IFW and then doing the sort of 
Mexican Independence Day card in September at the T-Mobile. Yeah, I think that's probably the best thing you could do because I've said many times on the show uh, how I'm, you know, I, I, I'm half Mexican. I identify as Mexican if we want to, you know, go down that route. But uh, I love seeing my fellow Mexican fighters succeed. You know, there, there's a reason. Like I love, you know, like the Rey Mysterios, the, uh, you know, Eddie Guerrero's in professional wrestling. Um, so I'm, I love this. And but I've also said many times I don't want to go back to Mexico for a fight because uh, that last one was rough. It was really hard to watch. I felt really bad for all the fighters involved. Um, I don't want to go back back to Mexico for maybe another year or so, um, which is getting harder and harder because, you know, of all the great Mexican talent coming through, the multiple Mexican world champions. Um, but I think doing a card on Mexican Independence Weekend, I love it. It's fantastic. And on the main channel, we do have a video celebrating the sort of rise of Mexican MMA, which I have been getting a little bit of blowback about. There have been people sort of nitpicking some of the... Um, I would say generalizations that I make in that video, which I understand that some people have different opinions and I'm okay with that, but it was intended to be a feel good video. And it's sad that some people don't want to treat it as such. Yeah. Uh, luckily for us, our fan base is so great that they initial, they instantly jumped on one person in particular and uh, they just kept going at them and ragging on them. And, you know, we're, we choose, you, you have a line that says, you have to get to choose your battles, uh, a.k.a. I take it as don't comment or else I'm going to have to fire you, Joe. Uh, <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> I've, I've, I'm very vitriolic. I like if I, I can be. So I, I just do that. But it was really cool seeing uh, getting some defense from our fans. Like, that was actually really heartwarming to me. It was like, what are you talking about, dude? Like, come on, this is. Like, you know, and it was, I really liked that. And we did get, a lot of the comments were also very positive and very cool, uh, especially for me, because um, that is a, like, moments, like, you know, hit me right in the heart. Like, I think my favorite, my second favorite moment in MMA history, at least maybe even number one, is Brandon Moreno not realizing he's champion until, like, five seconds after the finish. Like, there's something just so powerful about that, like, realization, like, visually sinking in. Yeah. And... It just hits me like it, it gets me going. I could probably tear up watching that. Really, and I said just said the same thing. Like really good, positive moments, and I hope that the fan base we we need to celebrate some more positive moments in this sport because there's so much yeah. sort of negativity and sort of sleaze and scandal that comes to associate with it. Let's celebrate some mm. of these good, happy times. And obviously, we'll talk about Brandon Moreno in a lot more detail later on in the show. For now, though, we're going to be talking about the prelims. You can see those on our screen right now. Now, we're recording this on the Saturday morning. So this is based on the last known sort of card order. So if there are any mistakes there, we do apologize for them. They're going to chop and change multiple times by the time this video comes out. One thing that we do hope will be happening on this show, and we're going to start as sort of our main headline on the prelims, is Robbie Lawler has announced going into this fight this will be his last matchup in mma made his ufc debut back in 2001 i think it was ufc 34 i'm tempted to say was his first appearance on the show and i think the big question we need to start with he's going to be taking on nico price what do you think is robbie lawler's place in terms of mma history he has probably one of the best comeback stories of all time in terms of a career turnaround 
he when he was entered the UFC, I think Dana White called him like the white Mike Tyson, which anytime you typically I feel like when Dana lobs like that kind of praise on you, you're just destined to fail. And he had some ups and downs. He, you know, he lost to uh, Nick Diaz in one of my favorite fights ever. Uh, Evan Tanner submitted him, who is a former champion. But then he got cut from the UFC. He traveled around, would win belts, would lose, will lose them. Um, always getting beat by guys who were just better or more highly touted, like a Jake Shields or something. Um, and then eventually he, like, I mean, he even fought in Pride, had a really good flying E, Ko and Pride. Was in Strike Force. He kind of traveled around. Then with the Strike Force merger, he comes in with little fanfare. It's like, oh, welcome back, Robbie Lawler. We'll have you for a couple of fights, probably. And he upsets Josh Koscheck. TKOs him in the first round. Goes on this huge technical turnaround spree. Uh, has a very, very good fight with Johnny Pigrig Hendricks. And uh, then he has another barn burner after losing that close decision with Matt Brown before beating. Pig rig again in the rematch. And I only call him that because he's from Oklahoma and Mrs. Waits. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm obliged to. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, he Robbie Lawler, in my mind, is probably the number three greatest welterweight ever. And I know I've gotten some flack on that in the past because I don't have Usman in the top three. But uh, I, I think Robbie Lawler's like legacy of being all action which isn't a style that is going to give you longevity combined with how long he was at such a great level in the UFC on the second run even. I I think that really holds a lot of weight to it. Um, I think Robbie Lawler is almost like the, if you're a rap fan, you might understand the analogy, but the MF Doom of MMA in a sense, where he is, uh, MF Doom was called your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Robbie Lawler is probably your favorite fighter's favorite fighter because I feel like if we pull every fighter and maybe every person on the planet of who their all-time favorite fighter is, the, the name coming up the most will probably be Robbie Lawler, I think. I'm glad you brought up the Matt Brown fight as well because I think everyone always brings up like the Condit fight and obviously the second fight mm-hmm. with Robbie. I think that Matt Brown fight is up there. Maybe just sort of like a step below, but like it always gets overlooked by the big two title fights. I think that Matt Brown fight yeah. is fantastic. I think if we, I think if we were to like rate all of his fights, I think that Matt Brown fight's like a nine point nine, whereas like the Condit McDonald two is a ten. Like I think it's that close. It's not as good, but it, it's incredible. And I think the other fights, honestly, his title fights with Hendricks are like very high up there too. Like that first one is incredible, and the second one. I, I love that fifth round. The final closing moments of that fight is just haunting in the most coolest way possible. Him stalking a gassed out, beaten up, and tired uh, Hendrix in a close fight might have won him the decision, and I don't care. Like it is so amazing how how awesome those fights are. He was he's probably the most entertaining fighter of all time. I love Justin Gaethje, but it might be Lawler, honestly. Do you think Rob? Do you think Robbie's timed his retirement right? Because obviously, we come to expect fighters to sort of go on a decline before they eventually call it a day. Has it started getting sad watching Robbie fight? Because it kind of did with, say, Frankie Edgar last year. It did start to get a bit. I'm not too sure whether he should still be there. I thought it was sad. I. It was kind of got to the point where it's like, oh, Robbie Lawler's fighting, awesome, and then you realize 
what it is. And uh, I, I hate being that way because I love Robbie Lawler, but it just is what it is. You, you don't want to see your heroes get beaten up and take extra damage. And it's hard, you know, like in professional wrestling, it's really hard to kind of finally call it quits. It's kind of similar in the fight game. It's kind of hard to call it quits, I'd imagine. So I understand it taking a longer time, but if in a perfect world he would have retired maybe one or two fights ago. Uh, one guy that we hope to see on the card is the next guy we're going to be talking about here, Jack Della Maddalena. Now, this guy has a ton of fanfare going into this match. He was supposed to be fighting Sean Brady, which I think would have been really intriguing, that sort of striker versus grappler matchup. Unfortunately, Brady is out through injury. At the time of recording, the UFC are hoping to have Jack Della on the card. Kevin Holland has put his name forward to say, hey, I'll do it as a catchweight fight. All roads do point towards him fighting on the Sydney card later this year, possibly against Joaquin Buckley. But disappointed that we don't see Jack Della because there's a lot of fanfare around this guy. He's the man. I really want to see more of him because I, you and me talked about how close on paper the Randy Brown fight was. He ran through him. And it was it was stunning to me. And so it's like, well, maybe this guy really is the man, you know, I, I want to keep seeing it. Keep giving him a hard test of so the Sean Brady fight was like, oh, we're throwing him in the deep end. But does he sink or swim? I want to see it. And I was really excited for that. And sadly, though, it, it it is the nature of the game. You know, people get hurt. I would rather a fighter take time off than fight injured and risk further injury. So any other name that takes your interest on the prelims? Jimmy Crute and Alonzo Minifield. Oh, good call. Yeah. So I caught that at the last second um, yesterday, like when I was kind of like looking over, because I saw our records for the year. And I saw that we had one draw. I'm like, what's the draw? And I then I was like kind of looking over the, you know, the fights. And I went, wait a minute, 290. That that rematch is there. Like that, because that was on a main card previously. And we both... I think we both picked Crude or Minifield to win, but it didn't matter because it was a draw. And so I'm actually really curious what happens there because that fight, that first fight's pretty good, pretty decent little back and forth. Obviously, it's a draw. Most draws tend to be pretty good. So I'm really curious what happens here. I'm probably going to honestly start watching early just to catch it. I do recommend people do check out the uh, first fight between the two because... Crute is, by a long way, the more technical fighter, but his striking defense is just not there. And he's going up against Menafield, who's just a proper, full-on slugger. And it turns into this mm -hmm. wild, sloppy brawl. I mean, if you're looking for a technical masterpiece, go somewhere it, else. But, but if it... you're looking for that sort of fun brawl, it's, it's basically sort of like a 2004 sort of... It reminds me of that sort of like, like yeah. Wes Simmons yeah. versus Mike Kyle, that kind of fight. Yeah, but without the biting, even. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's that, that fight is very old school and kind of awesome, honestly. That's a good way to describe it. I like that 2004 comparison to it, because I saw that here, and I was like, I, I got to bring it up. Like you can put, you can picture these two wearing like the tap out shirts and coming out to like stem. Like yeah, dude wipes on the butt. Like, let's do it. Yeah, I'm honest, I honestly miss customized trunks. And having sponsors all over you. Because I would rather my fighters look like NASCARs than the cage. Yeah. Um, one person who I'm very interested to see is... You were talking about the sort of new generation of Mexican talent. A lot of people are very excited about this lady here. I hope I pronounced it right. Yasmin Yaraguay. 10-0 so far in the UFC. 
she made her debut on a main card, which was, I think it was against Lucinda Acero. And there's a lot of people wondering why are they putting these two unknown girls on this main card in front of a crowd. And they absolutely blow the doors off the arena. It's a really good fight. A lot of people excited about Yasmin. Uh, she's unbeaten so far in the UFC. She's going to be taking on Denise Gomez. Um, any sort of fanfare around Yasmin on your event? I have some fanfare uh, for sure. She's um, They're kind of banking on her a little bit. Not hard, obviously, because, I mean, it's way too early to like kind of pitch the wagon to her. But, man, she got a really good pop on her previous fights. And, you know, she could be something. And she's in divisions. Like, uh, I feel like I'm always in for new blood. I always talk about that. Divisions kind of need new blood. You don't want to see the same fighters for 10-plus years in the same spot. Um, as much as we want to see our favorite stick around forever, for the longevity of a division, that's not a good thing. Case in point, 135, you know? Um, or in other, other cases, like flyweight was kind, of, was kind of like that for a while up until Figueredo kind of came in. And so, I'm, and she's young. She's only 24. Yeah, I mean, I've got some fanfare for her. I'm really curious to see what she does. Her last fight was a finish, which you don't normally see at strawweight, like hard you know, shot with like round and pound and getting after it. I, I kind of want to. I often say that if you're looking to see who the UFC are looking to try and push over the next few years, they usually put them on the undercard of an IFW show. So Yaraguay is going to be on there. Uh, Victor Petrino is also unbeaten. Cameron Simon. Uh, Tetsuro Taiba, Japanese's mm-hmm. like, big hope here. Um, he's got like a short notice fight on there as well. I do recommend people check out Taiba as well because. Uh, Mikhaev's getting all the sort of fanfare and attention when it comes to the flyweight division. I think Tyra is far better. Yeah, I think Tyra is far better too. Uh, I think Tyra is Japan's big hope at 125 right now. And speaking of unbeaten fighters getting a big push from the UFC, we move on to the main card. Opening the show up is a middleweight bout here as Bo Nickel will take on Trajan, and I'm going to put on my Paul Heyman impression here. Trajan, go! 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 Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I have that notes down. I wrote his last name three times because that's how you should say it. Uh, I wonder how many people watch this show who hate pro wrestling and just hate us having to delve into all these random attitude either memories. Um, tough luck. That's uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's all I can say. You know, I mean. At least we're not boring. At least we're having fun and laughing. Yeah, and that's the best way to do it. Like We make these shows yeah. for fun more than anything. Yeah, um, exactly. So it's the second UFC fight for Bourne Nickel, his second pay-per-view mm. main card slot. Um, I just want to ask a question, though, about not so much Bourne Nickel himself, but what Bourne Nickel represents when it comes to the UFC. Because we've seen a lot of times that the UFC have tried doing this sort of building a star from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time it's sort of backfired on them. So you look at people like Paige Van Zandt, Sage Northcutt. You could even include Raul Rosas. He is still young, so we can't really write him off just yet, but there's the signs that that might have backfired. Do you think that the UFC can develop stars? Like, I know that Bellator have done it in the past before. Like, they took AJ McKee from his debut to a title. But yeah. because Bellator's a smaller promotion, they sort of have a bit more leeway. But with mm-hmm. the UFC... It's a case of, we are the best promotion in the world. But you're trying to do that and at the same time take this young 
well, not so much young, but this rookie prospect yeah. and trying to sort of take him to a title. I don't it's think you can do both. It's really interesting. Um, it's hard because, like, on one hand, you want to see the UFC develop stars. You don't want to see them just kind of taking other, like, talent that was grown somewhere else. You know, you kind of want to have your homegrown guys, in a sense. Um, but at the same time, you want to have the best competition, which kind of feels counter counterintuitive to each other. Um, but I think they've had a decent job of doing it because it kind of feels like I think the set, like I mentioned it earlier, the second Dana plops like a lot of love on you, I feel like that's a, almost like a death sentence um, in, a, in a way because it's really easy for that to backfire hard because with Sage Northcutt, he's a really nice guy. Nothing wrong with him at all. Fans hated him. Because um, he had that sort of Dana privilege tag. I think the same thing yeah. with Sean O'Malley. Sean O'Malley was seen as sort of like a Dana pet. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He These Dana pets, just, you got to be a heel, you know, tough luck. Um, I will never forget my friend giving uh, Mickey Gall a hug, saying thank you for beating Sage Northcutt. <laughs> <laughs> One of the best stories I've ever heard. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's odd. But at the same time, like, if you look at talent that has you know, kind of cultivated and improved and grown in within the UFC and then hit that mega level. Obviously the guy in the co-main event as the champion was potentially one of them. Um, but the name I always think of is a Frankie Edgar who came in, not that much fanfare, just kind of rose slowly, slowly. And then he has that Rocky story to get to the title and, uh, what a fantastic career he had, you know, easily a hall of famer, but, Man, it's um, it's kind of hard to. I, I think that's like one problem of the promotion is they don't like putting, they don't like having, uh, you know, they don't want to promote everybody. They just want to promote certain guys, and that causes problems. And I feel like a lot of times they have that Vince McMahon eye for talent, like older Vince McMahon eye for talent, where it's like, like Paige Van Zant, she's gorgeous. Uh, she doesn't have the best submission game. I don't care, like. Push her to the moon. Sage Northcutt, he's small, but he's got that beef. Like, I'm you know, I, <laughs> I didn't want to say Paige Van Zandt had beef. That was my initial plan, and I instantly regretted it. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's just. Oh, that's the, wow. Wow. That tristrum. Wow. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's kind of weird. I feel like, I feel like with Bo Nickel, they're doing a decent job, though, because no one hates him yet. It is going to create a tricky situation, though, if what we think happens in this fight does happen, because yeah. Bo Nickel, he's just been steamrolling through his early competition. I think it's, what, four first-round finishes already? Yeah. Um, yeah. Including against Jamie Pickett, which was his USC debut. And mm -hmm. he's taken on Trajan Gore, 4-2, uh, ultimate fight for alum. Um I don't really see it as a step up in competition. And that's the sort of problem that you have with Bo Nickel is that you want to sort of slow roll him. But at the same mm -hmm. time, if he keeps doing the same thing he can to this sort of mid-level competition, people are going to start thinking, well, why aren't you giving this guy who is clearly better than the people he's fighting? Why aren't you giving him the tougher matchup? So it's like that catch-22. Like MVP yeah. had the same issues in Bellator. They kept giving him sort of like lower-level competition to mm -hmm. the extent that people were sort of writing them off as a can crusher. 
I think here though they've done a decent job because I, I I think I think if let's say in the next fight it's like another uh, even though I like him like Brian Battle he fights Brian Battle next and it's like oh, come on like that's all right you know like but at the same time you don't want to rush him because what if he run like let's say they gave him oh god Lord forbid um, they gave him Robert Whitaker. Uh, hold on, like you're killing this kid. Um, but at the same time, Trayshawn Gore also asked for this fight. He adamantly wanted this fight. Sometimes you got to get what you pay for. Because I mean, spoilers. I am picking Bill Nickel to win. Um, but it's you know, it's kind of hard to like you said. It's a catch twenty two. I think one fight at this level is perfectly reasonable and fine. I have no problem with it currently, but if it continues, you know, I'm going to have a problem. Yeah, I can tolerate that when it comes to this fight. I think maybe just one or two at this sort of level. And then after that, if Bo Nickel does run through Gore, which personally I think he's going to, mm-hmm. um, then you should start looking at... I personally think he's good enough to fight sort of like 14, 15 range, maybe a guy just outside of that. Um, mm-hmm. Is Brunson too high of a step? Maybe that sort, maybe just a step below Derek Brunson, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Ian Heidish. Here's another one. Chao Borayo. I think Borayo is good enough to earn a ranking spot. I... Yeah, I think so. And I think Bo Nickel and him could fight over it. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, so we are focusing primarily on Bo Nickel. Quite obviously mm-hmm. so. There are going to be some people here who they don't watch the Apex Fight Nights, won't know who Trajan Gore is, didn't watch Tough. What can you tell people about that, about him as a fighter? He's got a, he's a decent balance. Like, he has submissions and he has KOs. You know, he doesn't have a ton of experience, so he is a little sloppier, but he does have solid power that helps him out, especially in the grappling. Um, you know, get, like using his power to get advantageous positions is a very, very common thing in MMA, as we've seen throughout the years he's got a little bit of that um he was supposed he was a tough finalist kind of but he got hurt before and brian battle fought his replacement and won Uh, but i think they did rematch if i remember correctly or they did fight and brian battle beat him to you know kind of solidify it like i I was always going to be the tough champ um but uh he was good trayshawn gore had like a good amount of hype in in tough uh and he, he showed a good prospect I just don't think he's at this level. Like I, I don't, you know, his record is deceiving. I will say, but I don't think he's at like Bo Nichols level. It's funny saying that you're you're four and two fighting a guy who's four and zero, oh, who's at his second fight in the UFC proper. It's kind of odd saying that, but at the same time, uh, it's going to be a little bit of an uphill battle for him. Especially, uh, I I've been wanting to bring this up, trying to find a way to fit it in. Um, I think if I was Trajan Gore, I think I would really work on defending getting need in the balls and the clinch. Because <laughs> there's no denying J- Bo Nickel did not do that to get Jimmy Pickett down, which was really crazy. But me, Trajan Gore, he's the sort of quintessential Sean Shelby fighter. We mentioned before on the last month's show that Sean Shelby seems to like these middleware to a sort of they make up for technical shortcomings by being physically strong. And we saw that mm-hmm. with Barry Owen Anders, which is actually quite a fun fight. I will give that a lot of kudos from the 289 card. 
Um, and I think Gore fits that bill as well. He's very raw, but he does carry a lot of power. Um, you can tell, though, everything still feels like a work in progress. And that Cody Bundage loss hasn't aged well. No, not at all. I, I think I always think of like, you know, back in the day uh, before everyone was very balanced, like or at least considerably more than they were back in the day. You know how the UFC on the tail of the tapes and like maybe like UFC like 20 something or third in the 30s, they would say like fighting style, you know, and I think for like these Sean Shelby guys, they should just put fighting style athletic because that's kind of it first, you know, like nothing wrong with that. Like you can get very, very far in the UFC just by being a mega athlete. Look at um, Dominic Reyes beat John Jones. Yeah, absolutely. Did he beat John Jones? Uh <laughs> I was I was actually going to say John Jones. You know, you can you can be incredibly athletic, have some pretty good technical ability. Well, I mean, John Jones is a fantastic wrestler. Let's be honest, but uh, but I poke your way through, and you can beat a lot of strikers. <laughs> but um, like you know, Eric Anders had a really good run. Arguably, beat Machida, pure athlete, and like he's just raw though. Like, and I, I think this is a guy who isn't just athletic, but is a technical wizard in wrestling. And has very good jujitsu, and hits really hard. He kind of feels like a golden, you know, that golden unicorn hitting the cage. Do I think he is? Remains to be seen. But on paper, he is. It's kind of scary. I'm assuming we're going to be picking Bornicle to win this one. Yes, we are. Yeah. And what's the method? Uh, I think he's gonna. I think he's gonna get him down quick, and I think he's gonna submit him. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a ground upon. I think round one. I'm going to say first round submission as well for Bo Nickel. Um, my only sort of, the only thing that might give Trajan Gore some kind of optimism is that guillotine against Josh Fremd. Mm-hmm. Imagine if Bo Nickel shoots him for the takedown, he times it and catches him the way he did against Fremd. I mean, it's not likely, but he's shown that he is capable of defending takedowns. If Trajan Gore, if Trajan Gore beats and fi- or finishes Bo Nickel, if he finishes him, I'll say specifically, I'm probably tearing my ACL. <laughs> like I, 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 I am. I'm that confident in Bo Nickel, um, and I'm not trying to pick on Trayshawn Gore at all. I think he seems like a pretty cool dude for the most part, and uh, and I, I got no, there's I got no disrespect towards fighters, even if I don't pick them. Of course, you know we're professionals, but uh, I would be really pumped because as as much as it's like I love seeing this super talent come into the UFC, there's something really carnal and awesome about just watching Dana White's world burn and before his eyes. And I would love that. <laughs> so I think, uh, I'm, but I think Bo Nichols, you know, just doing his thing probably until he gets a guy who's like in the top 15. My knee still hurts from that fight, by the way. Oh, man. <laughs> I got a friend I work with who's 39 and tours MCL and ACL at the same time, Ooh. just recently. Yeah, it's like, oh man. So that is a career killer in sports. So mental note, if you are in your sort of like teens or your early 20s, take care of your knees because in every sort, you'll feel every kind of jolt and ouch going when you reach sort of like your mid to late 30s. Trust me, I know. Oh, yeah. Uh, my best friend, he, his birthday was yesterday. He turned 29. Um, big fan of the channel, of course. Uh, at least he better be. Uh, and, <laughs> but uh, my best friend for oh, now coming up on 24 years this year, in September, and uh, he's worked manual labor his whole life. 
and his back and knees are hurting and he's like i need to change careers like i'm he's really smart he's gonna go into computers like me good <laughs> take care of your knees and joints kids so it's safe to say fight number two is like fight number one i should say is a bit of a mismatch fight number two could be a little bit more competitive we're going to the lightweight division for this one as jalen turner takes on dan hooker so number 10 versus number 11 at lightweight turner comes in at minus 210 favorite dan hooker you can get a plus 180 now this fight was originally booked for ufc 285 unfortunately dan hooker pulled out with an injury Matouch Gamrot stepped in on short notice and beat Jalen Turner. Competitive fight. I can see that you personally don't agree with that one. I, do oh, I thought some... Gamrot won. Oh, but, uh, I just saw it, the way you shook your head me. apart. Oh, it just it just hurt me because I was really high on Jalen Turner. <laughs> yeah. um, as much as I am sort of interested in Jalen Turner, and obviously it's going to be a, good, a bounce back fight for him, so we're going to be mm. interested, interested to see where he stands. I feel most of the focus is still on Dan Hooker because obviously in his past six fights, Dan Hooker is two and four. Uh, that included that fight against Arnold Allen, where I do not know where they got the idea of him to move back down to featherweight. That just seemed like a, that I had a lot of fears that was going to go wrong and ultimately it played out that way, but he's not losing to bad fighters. Like, you look at the people that he's losing to, it's it's Dustin Poirier, Michael Chandler, Mark Achev, Arnold Allen. These are top elite-level guys. And at the same time, the guys that he's beaten, Nazrat and Claudio Puelles, they seem a little bit too much of a step down. So I think Jalen Turner is going to be a good gauge of how good Dan Hooker still is. I like how you worded that a lot. I, I think that's a really interesting point. I I have people I know that say like, oh, Dan Hooker sucks right now. It's like, I mean, yeah, the guy is technically two and four in his last six, but Dustin Poirier, Michael Chandler, beats Nasrat, then then Islam, then Arnold Allen. All four of those guys are probably like a winner or two away, outside of Islam, who already is the champ, technically. Uh, and uh, all, all, all three of those guys, though, are like one or two win away from getting a title shot still. Like, I mean, he's losing to top five guys in their division. It's I don't understand like the hate on him. Um, I think he's really good, and I'm a big Dan Hooker fan. I think he's a lot of fun. Some of the most vicious KOs and finishes at lower weight classes I've ever seen. You know, I mean, this is a guy who knocked out Gilbert Burns at lightweight, which is really crazy to think about now. And then like the Ross Pearson finish, like how durable's Ross Pearson been? Finished him with a flying knee. One of my all-time boys, Ross Pearson, and that one hurt, but it made me a Dan Hooker believer and fan. Uh, he got one over Jim Miller, you know, probably the the most UFC guy of all UFC guys. I've actually got a list of his uh, wins here. So as well as Pearson and Miller, you've got Gilbert Burns in there, James Vick, which was still a good win at the time, Ali yeah. Akinta, and Paul Felder. That Ali Akinta one is a smoking. That was back when Ali Akinta was like potentially getting top 10-ish again. And who's an underrated career talent, I think, Ali Quinta. And he smoked him, made Ali Quinta, you know, like put him on the road to retirement, sadly. And just the low, low kick master in that fight. Um, so we've talked, we've gushed a lot about Dan Hooker. What would you say are the big forties that Dan Hooker has to his game? What was it that made him, especially after the Felder fight, people thinking this guy is a dark horse to potentially fight for a belt? He's got like he doesn't have the best like submission game 
or he has a, a serviceable grappling game, but he's not looking to grapple extended amounts. He is a very big fan of one of the three S's, which is stand up. You know, the three S's of striking or grappling in my mind are uh, stand up, sweep or submit. And he really likes standing up and he's really good at it. Uh, Claudio Puyez can attest to that. And but he has like they're really they're kind of slow, but they have a sick like an almost like very quiet thud to him in his kicks. Like he battered Claudio Puyez. Like people say, oh, Puyez quit. No, no. He took like 40 body like snap kicks up the middle. That's going to drain you, and eventually he just had enough, you know, because he couldn't get the guy down, and he just kind of broke him in that fight. And, of course, in the Iaquinta fight, he low-low kicked his way to win. Mm. But he does. He also has great power, a, a super good left hook. Um, in tight, he'll elbow you. And what does he do against uh, these wrestlers who look to take him down? He catches you on the way in and reads your head movement to knee you. So Jim Miller, he knew when he would pressure Jim Miller, Jim Miller changes levels, so he need him. And against Ross Pearson, Ross Pearson has incredible head movement, and he read it, and he need him. And so him able to kind of utilize all three of these, like, you know, his power and his punches, his kicks, and his, like, you know, able to time a really good knee, uh, really gave gives him a very dangerous, like, striking set of skills, and he is incredibly durable. Like, Arnold Allen, you know, battered him, obviously, but at the same time, Arnold Allen's really good, and he dropped in weight, which makes it easier to be concussed and hurt. Um, so it was a little bit easier of a task, but, at like, Michael Chandler is probably the only guy I've ever seen do that to Dan Hooker. And Michael Chandler also hits, like... Rook. Yeah, I, I, I think if Michael Chandler threw a punch at me full force and missed, I think I'd wake up in a coma or wake up out of a coma still like he just has that oomph on his shots um so and he and and he caught him moving into the punch too which obviously like car crash science you know like two forces going at the same speed meeting in the middle it's a lot more force as well but um the dustin poye fight is insane test of durability for both those guys and hooker took a lot of wild shots in it and in the edson barbosa fight another guy who finished dan hooker it took everything to finish him though and it almost still didn't feel like it was enough like when he finally did it i'm glad you mentioned super tough guy i'm glad you mentioned the uh Poirier fight there because i'm thinking about doing this <clears> for uh, an upcoming video so spoiler alert would you call that the best Apex fight of all time? No. Uh, that's my number two. Because I was thinking about my fight of the year that year. I. Th yeah, you know what? It is number one, actually. It's number one. Um, but my favorite is uh, Figueredo Moreno 2, or 1. But that's uh, Poye Hooker is the best Apex car fight I've ever seen, maybe, in the Apex. So let's focus on Jalen Turner here. So 13 and 6 record. And we mentioned before that uh, Dan Hooker would sort of try to justify some of his recent losses based on the quality of his competition. Now Jalen Turner at the moment has, I believe, a 6 and 3 record so far in the UFC. And those three losses, they haven't come to scrubs. There was Vicente Luque on his UFC debut, which was, I think, 229. Uh, he was on the card for that, so like the biggest card in UFC history for Luke here. And his other two losses are Gamrot, 
and Masavola. So you can say that all three of Turner's losses, they have aged very well. Like this guy, yes, he's coming off a loss. Yes, his fanfare maybe might not be as high as it once was. The guy still has a lot of upside. He's young too. He's he's, he's sub 30, isn't he? I think he might be, yes. Like I'm going to double check. Yeah, he's, he's younger than me. He's 28. And if you're younger than me at this point, I think you're really young um, in my life. And, uh, yeah, he's he's got time on his side. Uh, not a ton of mileage either on him either. Like, it's, it's not like he has, like, 40 pro fights at 28, you know. He only has 18. Yeah, he's got a really big upside. And he is... He brings a really interesting problem to lightweight because he is huge. Yes. And not like thick. He's like long, lanky. lanky. Yeah, just wiry, you know. And just he also hits very, very, very hard still, which is kind of awesome to that his power has carried down to 155 so well. Um. Yeah, he's kind of a problem kid, I think, at 155. One of the things that's most impressed me when it comes to Turner, though, is he carries a lot of power, as you mentioned there. Mm. But he doesn't fall into the trap that a lot of fighters do, where he starts getting reckless when he has someone on the ropes. I think his composure is, for a guy who's still quite young in his career, it's very, very high. Because the one that sticks in my mind was when he fought Medic. And Mm. Medic was the guy who came into that fight with a lot of fanfare. He wobbles him. He hits him with a couple of body shots and uh, Medich starts keeling over. And instead of Ravage sort of swinging, I need to get him out as quickly as he can. Stays patient, gets him up against the fence, and then eventually gets the job done. I thought it was a very mature approach to the fight ending sequence. And we've sort of seen that maturity in some of these other matches as well. Like even against Gamrot. Like Gamrot's mm-hmm. like a two-time KSW champion, entered the UFC with a lot of fanfare, quite highly hyped. He didn't feel overwhelmed against Gambart. No, I, I don't think that really hurt his stock necessarily too much. No. In that fight. Um, I think his fight with Brad Riddell is like, was a really big eye opener for me. Yes. Because he, he hurt him early who Brad Riddell was very, was looking very, very durable before that fight. Um, you know, I mean it, it, that fight hasn't aged the best, but it's whatever it is, what it is. Um, just kind of the nature of the sport. Um, but yeah, Brad Riddell, he hurt him early and didn't just chase him. He stalked him, hurt him again on the outside, ke- keeping him out of range, which led to the drop. And then here, here he gets a submission one, gets the choke and it's over. He's very just calm, cool, collected, uh, when he's putting someone under the fire. And I think that is very, very scary when a guy can punch you from the next state over and hurt you <laughs> like while you're hurt and, that that he he's a problem in this division, I think. Like at least in terms of game planning for and planning around it, and how do you kind of get there? Yeah, it's the length. Like I think, and yeah. I think he's good at using his length as well. Mm-hmm. Which he's you don't very no- very good. Which you don't normally get with a lot of bigger fighters, because like the joke always was with Stefan Struve was he was a seven foot tall fighter who didn't know he was seven foot tall. Yeah, he fought like a six footer. You know, he fought a foot smaller than him. That's what people used to say. And it's just, he doesn't have that problem at all. There are two concerns I do have when it comes to Jalen Turner, though. 
Uh, number one is that if you look at the guys who've beaten them in the past, well, we'll take the Luke here fight out of the equation. But mm-hmm. Favola and Gamrot, like both these lightweight losses, they're both grappling heavy opponents. So there are mm-hmm. some concerns with takedown defense and bearing in mind that Dan Hooker used a grappling heavy game to beat Nazrat, that mm-hmm. could be a potential avenue that Dan might look to exploit. The other one as well is we mentioned about his height, but with that comes the sort of issue that I've seen a lot of fighters have. They have what are called tall man defense, which is their natural instinct to try and evade strikes is to lean back. So like Darren Till, I felt, had that problem. Even Shafkart, for all of his fanfare, he got tagged a lot trying to do the same thing against Jeff Neal. Turner seems to fall into that same kind of sort of issue, I feel. Yeah, it's... It's a, it's like a it's just definitely a t- tall guy problem when guys have naturally really tall they just kind of do that and you can get caught I mean a shop caught's the man at 170 right now I think but he got caught doing that it's just a common really common like failing at times so it's time for us to decide who we think is going to win this one and I have to say I think of all the fights on this card maybe sort of your mileage varies on the core man. This is the one I've struggled with the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I don't think I struggled too hard, but I also it was a an answer I heard kind of saying is kind of where it come. I struggled with it more uh, internally as a fan than I did as an uh, an analyst. I think, but I, I don't know. It, it, it this is probably the closest fight on the card. I think. And which way you go and where you put your money. I'm gonna go Jalen Turner. I think he's gonna get. I think he's gonna get a finish here. I, I, I hate being the guy uh, to say it, but I think if Dan Hooker wants to make this a striking battle, he's gonna want to low low kick the taller guy and try and take, you know, make it harder for him to use the long kicks against him. And I think that opens him up for probably like these big counter straights, kind of similar to what Turner did to Riddell. Uh, on the other side of it, I think. Turner's going to maximize his reach because the knees, due to his height, the knee part of his of Hooker's striking is kind of taken away mm. unless they're going to the body. And I think from there, unless Hooker can kind of make it like an in-tight close fight similar to the Dustin Poirier fight, uh, I think he's going to have a hard time on the feet. I think he's going to have to look for the submissions, but you at the same time, it's 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 easier to take down the taller guy. In, uh, in my experience, it's a lot easier. But at the same time, I, I, I kind of feel like I kind of feel like Turner's probably worked on his wrestling a lot because he made Gamrot work, really work for it. I'm going to lean towards uh, Turner as well. Um, mm. And I think my big concern with Hooker is mileage. Like, this is a guy who's yeah. going to be... This is his 35th fight. And I'm not sure how old Dan Hooker is. Um, but he's... I'm tempted to say he's, what... 31, 32, I'm tempted to say something along those sort of lines. He's, he's, he's 33. 33. That is yeah. a lot of mileage for a 33-year-old. And yeah. I think we often say that sometimes a fight will change a fighter. And mm-hmm. part of me does think that that Dustin Poirier war might have just been that sort of breaking moment for Dan Hooker. I hope that's not the case because I do enjoy watching him fight. But I can see Turner hurt. I, I, I'm more likely to see Turner hurting Hooker than I am vice versa. I 100% agree. I, I, I don't want to think that I don't want to think that that fight ruined Poirier or ruined Hooker, I should say. Um, 
because it may, it would make that fight harder to watch, I think. And I like watching like big brawls like that. Like those back and forth fights are great. I don't want to have to add that like little thought in the back of my mind. But that said, that is still just a ton of mileage. All the damage from the Edson Barboza fight. What Michael Chandler hit him and caught him clean. You gotta wonder. Because uh, that is a ton of mileage for a 33-year-old. And I think that could om- I think that's a, a double-edged sword having all that experience, especially in a fight like this. Uh, before we move on to the next fight, though, I want to bring up another interesting stat which I found when it comes to Jalen Turner. Jalen Turner has had six wins so far in the UFC. Four of them have been Callum Potter, Josh Kulabau, Jamie Malarkey, and Brad Vidal. All Anzac-based fighters. So Dan Hooker would be his fifth Anzac win in seven. Is he like... You know, they used to always say that uh, Vanderlei Silva uh, naturally had an advantage over uh, like the fighters that were of Asian descent. It, or, or, uh, is Jalen Turner have that over the Aussies and New, uh, New Zealanders? I think it's just coincidence, but I just it's a funny one. It it's a quirky it's a crazy one. one. I, I like coincidences like that, honestly. Yeah. You know, obviously the Vanderlei thing is because he fought in Pride, but uh, and uh, but the Jalen Turner one that is a good point. I, I Jamie Malarkey is from uh, is, a, is from uh, Australia or yeah. New Zealand. Well, he's one of in an area, it's the Oceanic like, area. It's like for a long time there was the uh, women's MMA white vest. Um, yeah. Sort of. Hoodoo. That's why Aldana lost. Yeah, didn't wear the white vest. Yeah. I'm t- I told you, Ravini should have shouldn't have worn the white vest. You could have had it all. But instead, we got uh, Juliana Pena yelling the cringiest things during a fighter's retirement, which was so, uh, so, so cringy. <laughs> Speaking of Australian fighters, we're going to be going on to fight number three. And this has kind of become, and it's it, this is a real, and I mean no disrespect to one of the fighters in this fight, because he is not the reason for this. This is kind of the meme fight of UFC 290. Robert Whittaker is going to be defending his number two seed up against Drickus Duplessis, who is at number five. Middleweight division. Whittaker comes in at a minus 360 favorite. Uh, Duplessis, you can get him at 295. I'm just going to call him DDP. I think it's easier to do mm. so. Yeah, bang. Yeah. Bang. Uh, yeah. <laughs> now, Dana White has already announced, quite interestingly, that this is going to be a middleweight title eliminator. And he doesn't normally do that when it comes to fights. Like, normally the sort of UFC approach is they sort of put two contender matches side by side and then choose the best performance from the two for the next title shot. So we're sort of seeing that at flyweight right now with some of the matchmaking they've made. So it's interesting to see him sort of reverting back to type and flat out saying the winner of this is going to be fighting Izzy and Sydney. Do you think that's the right approach? I kind of like it. I think it adds stakes to ranked fights. I mean, I, I, for me, if a fight's interesting matchmaking and has good matchmaking, I'm always interested, right? But um, I think for people who like aren't hardcore of the hardcores, um, then you know, like hearing like, oh, the winner's getting a title fight. Like, I kind of want to see this. It makes it a little bit more of an easy fight and helps elevate it, especially because I am adamant that. Uh, they think DDP is uh, winning this fight. Or they really want him to, I should say. And that sort of brings me on to another point as well. Just in general, in regards to the middleweight division, we know that the UFC are trying to make an effort to restock the weight class. Like, Izzy has been so Mm. active, 
and so dominant, there is a genuine shortage of fresh contenders for him to face. Mm. I just find it strange that they've... Just some of the decisions the UFC have made in terms of who they're giving these sort of opportunities to. And we're recording this on the same day that Sean Strickland's going to be fighting Abus Magomedov. And mm. I have no issue with the UFC trying to restock middleweight because I do have some of those concerns myself. But I'm somebody who sort of like focuses on meritocracy. I yeah. personally think that the opportunities that Margot Madoff and Alice Skeroff are getting against these top five guys, those should be going to the Brendan Allens and the Baraglios of the world who've won four or five fights in a row. I agree, 100%. It should have, Baraglio in the main event against Sean Strickland sounds pretty cool, uh, mostly because I wonder what the trash talk would look like. <laughs> but I do think that actually seems like a pretty decent step up for him because Baraglio has looked really good. I'm, I'm relatively high on him. Uh, I don't think he's like a world beater yet, but he could be eventually. Because there were some people out there who, when they booked Whitaker versus DDP, some people mm. were saying, why do we need to give DDP this fight? Like, he's got the longest winning streak in the weight class. He's the highest ranked mm. guy Izzy hasn't beaten yet. Why not just bite the bullet and go with Izzy versus DDP? Bearing in mind, you've got all the trash talk as well, the marketability, the Africa connotations to it. It's it runs the risk of sort of what's happening in featherweight with Max Holloway, where you've got like a number yeah. one ear who just keeps turning back every single contender. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think that, uh, like, I, I don't think you can book into Max Holloway uh, when you're trying to build up a talent, and you should not book anyone against Robert Whitaker for the same reason. Uh, Whitaker, he's the Reaper. He's taking your run and he's adding it to his collection just what he does i've noticed as well and we'll sort of we'll focus on ddp in a little bit more detail because mm. i feel like obviously what robert whitaker is in my opinion the better fighter i personally think he's going to win this one but i think ddp is the more intriguing sort of plot of this and i've noticed yeah. there is a lot of people out there that do not like this guy and i know he said <laughs> I know he said some controversial like things in regards to sort of South African politics, which I'm not going to get into. But I, that can't just be the sole reason. I genuinely believe it's because of the way he fights. People just don't like the idea of sort of this barely buddy striking, fighting for a belt. I am so sorry for laughing there. I was legitimately wondering how long it would be before we got into how much people hate him. And it, it, it broke me. I was trying so hard not to corpse, or else Macho Man would show up. But <laughs> sin for um, the man. Sin for the man. Um, but yeah, he's really he seems kind of unlikable in interviews. That being said, um, he wins, and his punches hurt my soul. Um, but he's wins with them. I, I don't dislike him, but it has to be just like the combination of it. He has a, a good arrogance to him, and he said some controversial things, which, and I'm not going. I'm not qualified to talk about it. I feel like I, I'm just here to have fun and make jokes and yeah. look really smart. You know, uh, the last one's the important one. Um, but it's, yeah, I. Uh, it's maybe maybe it's a mix of everything because I feel like nowadays 
saying something like what he said, definitely not going to win you fans. Um, and then you see him fight. So like, well, maybe he's redeemable here. And even if he's winning, it isn't the most pleasing style to watch, even though he's also a finisher Yes, as well. He's a finisher. He is aggressive. Um, but it always seems like he finishes fights while like he's about to like gas out and die of exhaustion. Um, it's kind of odd, but uh, it, it's it's really weird. People hate him, and I it, I it must be for the punches. Maybe I'm just caught up on that, but it, it's got to be the punches. And there's some decision making issues as well, which kind of make people sort of wryly smile. Because wasn't there a moment where I think he I think he hurt Derek Brunson, and was sort of mm. swarming him, and somehow ended up in full mount brunson ended up on full mount on top of him because he's just sort of swarming lost his balance and brunson ended up falling on top of him it was the two those two guys fought to see who has the slip the more slippery feet and like because Derek brunson falls over throwing a left hand sometimes and duplessis fell over walking towards him and it's it's very funny it's a really I, if you put benny hill music on that fight i'm pretty i'm i'm adamant that we would be dying laughing um and it's also a good fight and it's a good finish uh like the, duplessis is a finisher it, it's so weird to think that this guy is hated like without knowing anything if i just said if i just described him to people without doing the his punches I, I feel like people would go, oh, this guy sounds great. He's awesome. Wait, he's hated. And then, like, you, you see the rest, and I, it's so odd to me. I don't dislike him. I have nothing. I don't. I'm kind of neutral to the guy. Uh, I think he sounds dumb sometimes, but I'm also, like, you know, I like Paulo Costa, and that guy is, like, you know, like, that guy's awesome, but he's stupid. <laughs> Do you so think- is Sean Strickland. I like him, too, but. Do you think there's some method to Drickus's madness? Because a lot of people clown him for the way that he fights, and especially when it comes to the striking. But I can't help but feel that there might be he might be somewhat doing it intentionally. Because there's one trick that I've noticed that Drickus does, um, and I think I use the Trevin Giles fight as the big sort of example of this, where he almost sort of like invites people to tee off on him against the fence. So he'll, he'll sort of back up, bounce off against the fence. And as the fighter comes rushing in, that's when he throws, like he's sort of like big right hand and ends up putting him out. Like he did the same thing with yeah. Trevor Giles. And I think he's rocked a few people doing the same sort of technique. So I wonder if that sort of awkwardness is kind of something he does intentionally. I, I wonder if it's like this. That's a good point, actually. I, I'm a big basketball fan. I kind of consider myself uh, a for-fun basketball historian. And there was a player back in the day who used to like shoot his free throws granny style. And everyone made fun of him for it. But he's like one of the high. I think he's like in the top three highest percentage of success at the at the free throw line. And I wonder if it's like that. Like he, yes, he looks really. I don't want to say stupid. I feel like I'm just ragging on the guy. I can't rag on a guy with initials DDP. I love DDP too much. Um, but I, it it's not appealing to look at. That, that's what I'll say. His strikes aren't appealing to look at. Um, yes, he does have big power, but they're 
you know, maybe you got a point there with the methods. You remind, you remind you know, me on my, you remind me success. on, you remind me on my end because um, I'm a Newcastle United fan. Newcastle used to have a player called Steve mm-hmm. Watson, and when he would do a throw in, mm-hmm. he would do a full on somersault to lob the ball like far end, and eventually they had to outlaw it because he was just chucking it so far. That's awesome, though. I've seen that in like FIFA video games, like people can like recreate it with their created characters, and I'm like, that's so awesome, though. I've, oh, is that where it started? Uh, yeah, I think he was the first one to popularize it. That's amazing. That's super cool. Because I've, I've seen that all over, and I'm like, I, I want to be able to do that. If I played still, of course. So let's talk about Robert Whittaker now. So 24-6 and six record. Um, when mm. he first came into the UFC, there were a couple of slip-ups there. He got stopped by Stephen Thompson. There was the Colt McGee loss as well, which um, was a bad look for him. And since he's gone to middleweight, fight had transformed. Only two losses, which he's had at middleweight, and both come against the same man, Israel Adesanya. And one of those, you've always argued, you felt that Whitaker personally won their rematch. Um, it is interesting to think about where Robert Whitaker stands, though, because he is very much in this sort of Max Holloway position where he's incredibly talented. And if he was champion, if Adesanya wasn't there, he'd be this long-reigning champion who a lot of people would be showering plaudits at. But mm-hmm. things are the way they are. He's won here in this division, and... There's the prospect of there being a third Adesanya fight, and he, it, it's interesting to see because he's he's not so far lower down that he's a gatekeeper, but he's stopping people from fighting for the belt by being so good. He's he's a really interesting case. Like Max Holloway is, it's crazy to think that we have this. I don't think I've ever seen it ever be like this before, where there's. You know, like it's like Max Holloway and Robert Whitaker are that, and we've never seen anything like it before. And it's at the same time. Um, I'm gonna say some. I, I have some thoughts and opinions of Robert Whitaker that are a hundred percent drenched in bias because he's in like my favorite top five favorite fighters ever. Um, I think his resume is pretty unbeatable at middleweight. I think he has a almost an untouchable resume. I think he's one of the greatest middleweights ever, if not top two personally um and i really don't understand why they keep matching up prospects with him i'm just so perplexed still by that like why would you match guys up who want to fight for a title against max or him I, 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 i just keep coming to it why would you do this this is horrible matchmaking don't you want this guy to like don't you want ddp to win like i don't know he's in a rough spot though because if he if he wins this fight, then the Izzy fight, Izzy three fights happening, and here go like I think it's one one, but for a lot of people it's two zero, and that makes it hard to kind of pitch again. But I do remember it, there was a lot of people who, when they did Volk versus Holloway three, they thought, "Do we really need to see this again?" It's a very similar situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that. That's even crazier to me. And they both have goatees. This is a crazy. Is this a is this a UFC conspiracy that we just discovered? Maybe. Interesting. Huh? Huh? We're gonna have Mick Maynard and Sean Shelby show up at our door soon. We're in trouble. <laughs> and what- um, but no, like it's it's the weirdest thing that. 
that it's they're exactly in the same position. They're like top five greatest ever in their division, fantastic champions, great talent that they don't seem to age, and they're just beating everybody that isn't the champion. What do you think it is that has made Robert Whittaker reach the level that you, that sort of pedestal that you put him on? Mm. Like, what are the technical um, sort of X's and O's that have made him such a good fight for you? Well, it sounds like you don't have him on that high. Right? No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> no, I, I do rate, um, I do rate Robert Whittaker very highly. I'm just, I'm obviously quite biased towards yeah, the old school guys. And like, obviously I'm going to lean mm. towards people like Anderson and even like Rich Franklin, Vitor, and that sort of golden age of sort of middleweights after the strike force guys came in. I'm only I'm I'm just messing with you. I I am incredibly drenched in bias and uh, with my pick as him because I have him at number one personally, but everyone gives me the weirdest looks ever for it. Well, you don't uh, you don't I'm, include I'm drug open. cheats. <laughs> oh, I don't include drug cheats. Yeah, if you pop hot, you, you ain't in. It's just how it is. I have Izzy too, who could be number one. Obviously, I think he's probably going to get number one, admittingly. But I have Rob one, and then I have. I have a hard one. I have three Rich Franklin, four Weidman is where I have it at. And I don't know if I anything past that. Maybe Jacare, honestly, because I love Jacare. But um, yeah, he he has a weird style. He has a karate style, and you kind of expect it to be like because because of these two names of Leota Machida and Stephen Wonderboy, you know Thompson. You kind of expect karate to be like them in a sense of some, some spin kicks, flashy hands low kind of bobbing back and forth with like a footwork primary you will see him have a similar stance to wonder boy at times but he's much more like young gsp striking in a sense in a sense him and gsp are actually pretty similar i'm not comparing them i'm not comparing a guy i love and very biased towards to in my opinion the undisputed number one greatest ever Uh, i'm not saying that you know but um they both have the same similar Kyokushin, if I believe it's Kyokushin, karate background. Um, and Rob has really had a ton of success becoming kind of, in a way, Crow Cop-esque in his striking. Uh, I, you know, us at the INC, we both love Crow Cop. We yes. both love, you know, the older school guys. I'm a very big Crow Cop fan, and I, I love breaking down Crow Cop for people of the tri-attack right straight right body kick right high kick rob doesn't have the best right body kick he'll throw it to make you worry about the head kick but what he's incredible at especially in recent years is making you think about the right straight and then catching you with the high kick immediately after like he almost throws it to set it up and then he's already turning his hips over into the high kick and he knocked that he almost knocked out jared cannonier with it he hit Marvin Vittori like 15 times it felt like with it. He caught Kelvin Gaslam with it, almost hurt him and finished him. Um, he hit Izzy's arms a bunch of times with it. Izzy's really slick, but even Izzy was like, ooh, that got close. Um, he did it to Jacare, Derek Brunson. He has a really good counter and he uses his lead foot to, he, I mean, he hit Yoro Romero like 40 times with it too and they're, too, and they're incredible duology. But um, he uses his lead foot as well a ton to kind of bounce off of it to get that quick burst of speed when he needs it. And to try and, like, 
move in for his offense. And then he'll kind of like, he's very lead foot heavy because um, he wants that kind of like instant burst of movement, kind of similar to what Machida was. He's got a really interesting and a kind of cool karate style. I'm not a karate fan personally, but his MMA karate is very interesting to watch. Same with like Wonder Boy and Machida's, of course, but um, they were very, he's a very interesting guy to watch. Also, underrated wrestler. Yes. Has a really solid wrestling and, and grappling game. his takedown defense is fantastic. One of the best I've ever seen. Like, it's very, very good. Um, it's really weird seeing the Court Mickey loss on his record still. Um, because nowadays he has transformed his defensive wrestling around. Um, like, I, I, uh, I, you know, I'm a big fan of Jack Slack, of course. Jack Slack talked about years ago that he surprised Whitaker never went down that GSP route because by all accounts he has he's been trying or like I think he's been looking to join as an alternate or perhaps even compete on the Australian Olympic team which is crazy um and like I'm surprised he doesn't just because he trains with those guys for wrestling I'm surprised he just didn't go the GSP route and start taking everybody down you know with the karate base as well but uh I mean he's much more exciting the way he fights and he just has a way of hurting people with all these kicks, great snap kicks, great lead leg, sidekick to the knee, which I used to hate the technique. Now I think it's for the it's dangerous but fair ish, you know. It, it's he's got a really varied like a lot of kicks and punches coming at you with a good amount of power, and he's got great cardio as well. So I'm going to assume that you're picking Whitaker to win this one. Yeah, uh, unless. Uh, unless they legalize the diamond cutter, I don't see. Uh, I I can't imagine uh, Whitaker losing this fight personally. Yeah, I'm going to be picking Whitaker to win this one as well. I see something similar to the Marvin Vittori fight. I think that. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't put it past Drickus to have a moment, and all Drickus needs mm-hmm. a lot of the time is a moment to get this done. But I think Whitaker is just going to be constant pressure on him, and I don't think he's going to finish DDP because he is incredibly durable. But I do. I see something similar to the Vittori fight. It's going to be like 30-27, no question of who wins this one. That being said, though, as much as I've enjoyed the two Whitaker-Izzy fights, I kind of want DDP to win this one just to give us something different. Well, I, I actually have this prediction. Um, I, know what Dana, I know Dana said this is for the title, but I... There's always a grain of salt with Dana White. Mm. Um, I think if Whitaker wins, he doesn't get a title shot. They're going to have someone else jump first in line. I think. Because they go, this is the third time we've had these guys go, give Izzy someone else. And Izzy himself and uh, Eugene Barman, I think his last name is, their head coach over at City Kickboxing. That's another thing too. City Kickboxing for both Volkanovski and Izzy. We found a conspiracy. I'm calling it. <laughs> and <laughs> we, we, we did it. We, we cracked this code. Oh my God. Um, but <laughs> um, he said that he's been very adamant that they don't. he doesn't want the Whitaker fight. He isn't, he isn't wording it like that. But he's like, oh, Whitaker doesn't deserve it. Like what if Darren Till gets two wins in a row when Darren Till's like zero and three? And I was like, ah, oh, come on. This isn't fair. Like, stop ignoring Rob for a third fight. Come on. So I know their team doesn't necessarily want a third Rob fight. I could see the UFC going, yeah, okay. I've yeah. got a theory. There is a theory going around here, and I'm going to put this to you. If Whitaker was to win, 
like Izzy is going to headline that step that card in Australia, that Sydney card. But it he didn't specifically say there's going to be Izzy defending his middleweight belt. I'm going to put forward a Phoebe here. If Whitaker wins, are they doing Izzy versus Jamal Hill? Because Yuri isn't back yet. He's going to be out for a little bit more, it sounds like. And there's no middleweight contender who's really lighting up the pages saying, I desperately want this. I can definitely see that. I think that's what they're waiting on to announce it then for. They're waiting to see what happens here. Because DDP and Izzy just want to go at it, you know? Um, fighting over Kimberly Page again, Mark Nero style. <laughs> I had to... If 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 his his initials are DDP, I'm gonna make references to the People's Champ. Um, but I, yeah, I think they're waiting. If they're gonna, they want DDP to win so they can do the middleweight fight. But if not, they're just gonna have him go to 205. Call main event time now, and this one, I believe, this might be one of the closest fights betting wise on the entire card. Because it is a flyweight title fight. It is Brandon Moreno who is taking on the number two seed, Alexandre Pantoja. Now, the betting odds for this one, Moreno is a minus 140 favorite. You can get Pantoja in at plus 145. Now, this is actually, and I'm surprised not many people are reporting this, this is actually the third fight between the two men. Because they fought back on the Ultimate Fighter, fin uh, not the finale, but they fought on the Ultimate Fighter. And I believe Pantoja was the number one seed. Moreno was number 16. Very competitive fight. A lot of fun. I do recommend people check it out if they get the chance. Uh, which Pantoja ended up winning by submission. And I believe that might be the only stoppage loss on Moreno's sort of record, in inverted commas. They yeah. fought again at Fight Night Chile in 2017. Pantoja won that one again. And yet here we are with Pantoja 2-0 up. And yet he's going into this fight as the underdog against the champion who he's beaten twice. It's a very interesting scenario. It's very odd. Um, but I think I think the reason why is it's very safe to say that Moreno is not the guy he beat all those years ago twice. I, th I think recently we've just seen a different kind of guy, you know, compared to the Moreno of then. Um, and the different guy in question is a guy who has beaten Davis from Figueredo twice, Kaika of France twice, and also has Winsland over Brandon Royval and Dustin Ortiz, who actually beat Pantoja earlier on in his career. And I will say as well, we've spoken plenty of times, we've done videos about it on the main channel, about the state the flyweight mm. division was in, especially around sort of the later stages of the Mighty Mouse Eva and when... People were thinking about closing it around the time of the Cejudo versus Dillashaw fight. To see where it is now as a welcome part of the UFC roster, it's fantastic to see. It's it's such a great turnaround. I'm a Mighty Mouse guy. I, I love Mighty Mouse. I, I think he's in the top three greatest ever. But, man, it is so nice. Him, not, <clears throat> Excuse me. It's so nice. The ramifications of him. I, I think he won. Losing to Cejudo, and then Cejudo kablooing TJ Dillashaw with his 14-ton head. <laughs> like, it's... I he's, he's in the same club as me with big heads. He's going to get it every time. But uh, it's so awesome seeing Flyweight just not, not just become 
like a, a stable division again, kind of similar to where women's flyweight is. Women's flyweight is stable and doing pretty well. It's men's flyweight isn't stable. It's like just a glowing, just treasure of talent and fights going on right now. And it's blooming. I love it. And it's like, it feels like it's finally allowed to sit at the big boys table when the UFC has dinner and no longer sitting at the kids table at the barbecue. It's they're they're sitting with the adults now. And it's really nice to see because like you know, I've had some of my favorite moments in flyweight. Like people used to take the mick out the flyweights. You used to say like it was the Hobbit weight division, stuff like that. And now this sort of mm. new generation of Moreno, Pantoja, Figueredo, Royval, Kaikara, France. You've got guys who, like flyweight has always been entertaining. But the one knock that people had against the flyweights was they weren't finishers. These guys are finishers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's even funnier too is I... One of the, probably the best thing MMA junkies ever done is back in the day they used to have a thing for Sundays where fans would write in like a paragraph or two of stories to and they would just print the best fan submissions for stories and you got a lot of different opinions sometimes they were parodies and were very funny but one guy that was that hit the front page of it once talked about the complaints against the flyweight division and he broke down the percentage of fights and finishes for each division and flyweight had a better finishing rate at the time than any division except for heavyweight and light heavyweight and it's just like the the nature and perception we see of it, of them and and how sadly the champion Demetrius Johnson wasn't the biggest finisher cuz that 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 affects things you know sadly is if your champion, the marquee guy, the face of the division, isn't exciting, it will make people think the rest of the division isn't. And I think with Figueredo being this haunting killer of, of the division for a while, I think that I think he doesn't get enough credit for how hard he made flyweight what it is now. And he had the look as well, like with the red stripe in his hair. Yeah. He had the look. He had the finishing the ability. Yeah, the only thing that like really hurt his look. And I think it's – and he's proud of this picture, and I think it's funny, and I'm glad he's proud of it because I don't think there's anything wrong with it. was the picture of him hairdressing back in the day because that's what he used to do before he was a fighter. And people – like it was him hairdressing like someone, and like he's dressed up flamboyantly and everything. Who cares? He, that was his job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, we've all had yeah, like, bad uniforms as jobs. Yeah. I'm wearing mine for work right now. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> that's my excuse. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's um, – yeah, it's uh, like flyweight is so good right now, and I'm I could not be happier because for me personally, I am very short and I'm very small. When I was in shape and wasn't fat, uh, I was walking around at like when I was like one thirty four ish. So I I used to go, you know, if I wanted to fight, I'd probably cut to one twenty five. And so it is really cool seeing guys around my normal size fighting and doing well you know and getting the respect that they deserve so we'll focus on this fight in a bit more detail here and we'll start with brandon moreno and you sort of brought up a little bit earlier that you felt that brandon moreno wasn't the same fighter he was back in 2016 2017 when he had those two fights with pantoja what do you think he has changed in his game that's seen him go from getting cut by the promotion to now being its champion uh, I think it's a lot of it's up here, personally. 
Um, he's a much better and much more technical striker now, but more importantly, he's a much more disciplined striker. So he had like a little bit of a wild streak to him back in the day, like not overly aggressive, but just kind of letting it rip whenever he had the chance. And nowadays he he's open to kind of be really patient, be defensive, kind of just have fun in there. You know, he's notorious for him throwing the chin up and just seeing what the opponent reacts to so he can how the opponent reacts to it so he knows how to attack it what are your tendencies and how he breaks you down um his adjustments in the kai car fronts were genius and led to a finish in this in their rematch um like he and if you i, I watched i mentioned uh, before the call or you know before we started recording i rewatched the entire quant trilogy of brandon moreno and Davis, davis and figueredo first off that's probably a top five rivalry of all time <laughs> Every fight was fantastic, um, and I still hate the decision of the round three of uh, fight three. But, but um, uh, he, you can see how Figueredo is kind of the same guy, just slowly picking things up throughout the the quadrilogy, whereas Moreno looks much different and much more prepared each time. Yes, like. It was very clear who was getting better over the course of their fights and who was learning more from their opponent over the course of the fights. And even sometimes in the middle of the fight, he picks things up very well. Uh, he's shown that he still has that oomph, that power. Figueredo, just very tough guy. Um, but he hits pretty hard for flyweight. He's not hitting as hard as like Figueredo or back in the day, Joseph Benavidez or even probably Henry Cejudo. He doesn't have their level of power, I Don't would see. say. Oh, probably one of the one of the most underrated KO artists at, uh, in flyweight history, John Dodson, um, and uh, but he doesn't have their power. He doesn't necessarily have their speed. He's very quick, like a flyweight champion would you would expect to be, but he he's he beats you here. He's I'm not saying he's much more intelligent than his opponents, but he fights much more intelligently. It seems like, um, and he's so well rounded and so balanced while being pretty tech like he, he seems a little sloppier but i think he's really technical and just knows how to he learns how to beat you throughout the course of a fight and also as well one thing that you've sort of touched on there like brandon moreno obviously gets a lot of praise for his boxing and i'm seeing mm. a lot of the rumors going around which they do for pretty much every single fight at some point or i might try and transition into boxing after my career is over that sort of thing yeah. Um, so the main focus is mainly on his boxing. I think Brandon mm. Moreno is a criminally underrated grappler. He, that's what he came into the UFC as. Yeah. People forget that. He was, uh, hope I can take you down because I'm one of the first black belts in, Mexicans, in Mexican history. Like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take you down. He's a really good grappler. He won the title the first time because of how well he is at it, just attacking the back, taking the back and just snatching it. You know, just like Alexa Grasso. And <laughs> <laughs> couldn't help myself. I thought Jack Slap um, took over the show there. I know. <laughs> uh, all-time good Gegard Musasi coming in. Uh, <laughs> one of the most scathing insults I've ever heard for a fighter. And ooh, But, yeah, um, he's a really, really underrated grappler. He's just so balanced. It, it's kind of hard for me to say... Like, 
if he has a weakness in terms of where his technical is, maybe in the wrestling because he isn't like the big, you know, offensive, I'm going to clinch you double leg you like off of a missed punch kind of guy. But he's he's got a balance. But if we're talking about grappling games, there's his opponent as well. Mm. Good thing you brought him up here, Alexandre Pantoja, 25-5 and records so far. Now, his last win, I think most people picked him to beat Alex Perez. I don't think mm. anyone expected him to do so in under a minute. Very dominant performance from him. And that fight, like, a lot of people were sort of teasing the idea of Pantoja potentially fighting for the belt. There was no question about it after that match. Yeah. He, he came out, he made a point in a statement and said, I'm here, I'm the guy. You know, I have a meme on my phone of AJ Styles, like, smiling and ha- having with a Taker good time. in the background. Yeah, and it's Pantoja and, like, as Taker with the winner of Moreno, uh, Vigoreto 4 as AJ Styles, and it's like, yep. That's kind of how it felt. And there does seem to be the sort of painting of Pantoja almost as this kind of boogeyman off the back of that finish. And mm. I, I do completely understand why people are high on Pantoja because he's got that grappling prowess. Um, being Nova Nunao, he is fantastic when it comes to the leg kicks. And I think that could be a potent weapon for him, bearing in mind Moreno's primarily boxing base these days. Um, mm-hmm. But the guy does have five losses, including yeah. a loss to Justin Ortiz and Oscar Askarov. Mm. Who were both primarily grappling based. He, so, yeah, he, he got out he got out wrestled by them, if I remember correctly. Yeah. I personally think Askarov if Askarov was still in the UFC, he was the he was the guy I thought was going to be the the long reigning champion. Yeah, I, I that guy only lost to like top talent. It's cr- like I feel bad for the dude because he was very, very good. Uh his fight with Benavidez was like a coming out party in a way. Because I thought that guy was super talented. I think you might need to look this up. I, I think the only guy who I've beaten was uh, KKF. And Moreno. Oh, Moreno. Uh, yeah, KKF, I think, is the only guy to beat him. But Moreno and him went to a draw, draw. because of a... They deducted a point for Moreno for, like, a I think, shorts grabbing or fence grabbing or something. But it was like the Tito Ortiz moment in the Rashad fight. If I remember right, I, I should have watched this fight because I had all the time. But I think he went to grab the fence... And when, when he got taken down, he still got taken down anyway as he went to grab it out of the reaction. Like, it didn't matter, but they took the point anyways. So you give up the takedown, and you lost the point. And the other big concern I do have when it comes to Pantoja as well, cardio. Yeah. The guy does drop off when it gets to the third round. Mm-hmm. And he's fighting a guy who was throwing haymakers after throwing haymakers for 20 minutes. And he's throwing a haymaker at the last second of his championship fight. So it does make it very intriguing because mm-hmm. I think for me, this fight is going to come down to what happens in those first two rounds. I think yeah. that Pan- I think what Pantoja is plus 145 going into this match. I think mm-hmm. you can get good value for money on Pantoja winning this because I do think that those first two rounds is going to be very dangerous. But if you can't get you done in those first two rounds, then the ball falls into Moreno's court. Like round three could be very pivotal in this fight. I think so. I think, I think as the fight progresses, Moreno's going to have more and more success. If I'm Pantoja, I, my in my brain, if I'm rooting for Pantoja here, I would want Pantoja to 
try and maximize the first two rounds or slow down, you know, like you kind of have to do one or the other. I think, I think that, I think he does have good value. If you're looking to to make the, make the bet, I think he's got some good value being the underdog here. I'm surprised he's the, he is the underdog here. Then again, Reno has looked fantastic. I mean, so I can kind of see like recent history, you know, um, that's, you know, he's beaten one boogeyman twice of the division, but I think I'm, I'm, I think this fight when I was watching Moreno and, or watching the Pantoja fights, I, I caught something. And I think this is the big question I found myself asking, because you, you had a hard time with the Jalen Turner uh, and Dan Hooker fight. Yeah. I had a hard time with these main events, with both main events. I had a hard time kind of looking at it. And then I saw this one, this one thing, and I I, I think this is going to be the question of the fight. Pantoja loves to blitz. He loves to have that aggressive Nova Yunyao blitz, almost reminiscent of shoot-a-box back in the day. And because he has good power in his hooks and, of course, his kicks. Um, he's got some good power, though. He likes to blitz and try and get the takedown off of it or try and hurt his opponent. But when he does, he does with chin first. Mm. In the Moreno fights, when he would blitz, Moreno just kind of tried to circle out and would get kind of caught in the end of like in a clinch or a grappling exchange or maybe even take a punch in those things. He didn't have an answer for the blitz necessarily in their first two fights. Now with the much more technical Brandon Moreno, I want to know what his answer is. How does he deal with the blitz? Does he wilt, you know, or does he, you know, wilt again and lose, or does he come in and counter it, or enforce a stand-up fight in the open, which I think he has much more of a chance of success in? Like, I, I want to know what Moreno's answer is to this blitz, and I think he does have an answer. So I, I am, I. You know, to segue in, I, I have Moreno by decision. I think he's going to probably have some trouble with the first two blitzes and then figure it out. Like I was saying earlier, he's going to figure something out. His corner is going to is always fantastic, no matter what gym he's at. Apparently, he's been in three gyms and three different fights. You know, um, and uh, I, I think he, I think he's going to have an answer for that blitz eventually. I'm in the same board. I'm going to be picking Brandon Moreno to win this one. I'm going to say by decision mm-hmm. as well. Um, and personally, I think that's the result that the UFC want as well. Like, I think that mm-hmm. I think Brandon Moreno has been a big factor in Flyweight being such a an affable sort of welcoming division because he's he's the he's the dorky guy who collects the Funko Pops. And, yeah, he, like, he loves his Legos, you know. Yep, yeah, and I mean, I know that like. The main focus for the UFC should be on meritocracy. It should be the best fighters earning the title fight. But there is a market marketing side to this sport, and I think that Brandon Moreno is a more media-friendly champion than what Pantoja would be. Like Pantoja, I don't believe speaks any English. Um, so I think from the UFC's perspective, they want Moreno to win, regardless of the result. Though I don't want to see a rematch, regardless of what happens. Like nope, this. That's how you- That'll kill this division again. Yeah. This, like, the winner of this fight should be fighting Brandon Royval because I think he's earned the title fight. Yeah, absolutely. And that'll be another rematch for Brandon Moreno, but who cares? It's a rematch for both guys. It would be, yes. 
but who cares because it's meritocracy is what matters not and i don't want to see a decision unless it's like a draw i don't want to see a rematch you know what i mean um i i think you kind of brought up a good point um it the champion and the face of division should be meritocracy not marketability i think the ufc is so glad the guy who has proven himself to be at the, at the, at the time of recording at least who knows next week we could be wrong but the best guy in their division is such a nice marketable guy in a who's from a country with a growing fan base for the sport yes that is very marketable too like they have hit the jackpot with this guy because he's he's funny he's entertaining and he's a nice guy he's not he's a good representative for the sport you know that that's what you want in champions i mean god forbid we have a representative i don't know hypothetically speaking a guy with like multiple duis and controversies that we had to hard time fitting a top 10 list for yeah like um, you know, hit and run incidents and failed drug tests and accusations a squad of, car accusations, accusations of abusing his wife yeah that would be a hard if that guy was champion it's a bad look for the sport especially like what if he like crazy world what if he failed a drug test like multiple times failed it again they have to make a new rule just so he can pass a drug test and then move the event the week of. That'd be crazy. Yeah, that, that's never going to happen, Joe. Yeah. We're... All this tomfoolery you're talking about. <sighs> oh, give myself nightmares just thinking about it. I'm just dreaming too much. <laughs> well, you're not going to be having nightmares about this one, though. This main event could be an absolute belter. Featherweight title is on the line, and it's champion versus champion. It's Alex Volkanovsky taking on Yair Rodriguez. Betting odds for this one... I was surprised to see how big the gap was. Volkanovski is a minus 450 favorite. You can get Rodriguez at plus 350. And I'm going to start off by talking about Volkanovski, not so much in terms of the fighter, but in terms of his perception by fans. Because I was very interested to find out. I've obviously done a lot of like reading on the backstory of Alex Volkanovski, the fights he's had in the UFC. It wasn't until UFC 266 that Volkanovski headlined a UFC fight card. So in his rise up the rankings, never headlined one. When he became champion for the two max fights, never headlined one. And yet now his stock has raised so much, the company are trusting him with International Fight Week. You love to see it, especially for a guy as cool and awesome as he is. You just love to see it. It, It's fantastic. Like, none of the Max fights headlined a card, which is crazy to me in hindsight. But, like, it's fantastic seeing him given the IFW love here. Because he's what a, he's another good representation of the sport, I think. Yeah, and it's another guy similar to Moreno who's earned this sort of adoration through merit. Because mm. he's, he's a normal bloke who happens to be fantastic. And I just think that, that likability and people respecting him as a good fighter yeah he also came into the sport as a sean shelby my style is athletic yes like his he everyone talks about the best base in mma being wrestling here's a crazy thought what if it's just being a massive massive lad who plays rugby that was his base and look where he is now (laughs) it's a fantastic job for him um, and yeah. I will, I have to give him all the kudos as well. And 
there's always been a lot of discussion, especially this year, in regards to who is the pound for pound number one. And mm-hmm. I know that the UFC are trying to push this narrative about John Jones, but I'm sorry. One fight in three years against a guy who's stylistically a dream for you does mm-hmm. not make you the pound for pound number one. For me, it's still Volkanovski. Because it's even with that small. size discrepancy and against a guy like Markachev, who has been this sort of boogeyman at lightweight, I don't think Volkanovski won that fight, but he gave mm-hmm. him the closest possible fight he could. I think he's he struck still... fear into his heart. Yeah. And that is saying a lot. Like, one more round, Volkanovski wins that fight. Easily. Maybe even finishes him. He he had him in some trouble near, as the fight went on. So, we'll talk about Volkanovski in a bit more detail, some of the intangibles here. So, yes, he mm-hmm. is coming off that loss to Markachev, but here's some of the wins on his resume. Max Holloway, three times. Korean Zombie. Brian Ortega. Jose Aldo. Chad Mendes. That's like every guy in the top five, you know, that feels like almost every guy that's been top five in like the last 10 years, it feels like. Yeah. Outside, of Connor, that's just... ev- outside of Connor, that's every featherweight champion. Yeah. So every featherweight champion, as far as I'm concerned. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> One nine four just never happened for you. I, you know what? As far as I'm concerned, it didn't happen. You're not the champ until you defend the strap. That's a... I'm going with, but yeah, he he's what what a resume this guy has. And the amazing thing as well, when it comes to Volkanovski, is that there isn't a sort of intangible when it comes to him. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of like with some fight, like with Wonderboy, for example, you know he's like an elite level kickboxer and he uses that karate based style, that sort of thing. Volkanovski was never, I mean. Kind of his sort of ground and pound grappling based style early on in his career, so like the Darren Elkins fight, you could sort of maybe point to mm. that. But everything since then, it's just been so technically astute. Like he's just yeah. he's just perfected those sort of intangibles, those little extra somethings that make a good fighter great. I I, I don't want to compare another person to the greatest ever, but he reminds me of George. Because Whenever, let's say you had to fight Josh Koscheck back in those days, it's like, this guy's a superstar wrestler. He's going to eye poke me and throw a right hand. Okay. <laughs> like, that's what you got to work with. Mike Swick, like, okay, this guy's going to try and KO me quick. And if he doesn't, he's getting a guillotine and that's it. Um, John Fitch, he's going to take me down and hold me. Like, you know, you had those. With George, it's like, I don't even know what this guy's going to come and want to do. And I don't know if I can stop it. Like, it maybe okay if i catch him on the feet okay like i have to catch him on the feet i'm a better striker than him i think oh he's just gonna wrestle me okay i'm a better grappler than him okay okay he jabbed my face into like a million pieces like what do i do like that's kind of with volk but volk doesn't have a base in mma so you just go he's got a low center of gravity he's really strong and hits hard and he's quick Uh oh what, what is he gonna take me down is he gonna strike with me What's he going to do? You, you don't really know what his approach is on fight night, which is a huge plus for a guy like him. And the thing that really impressed me, even in the Markachev fight, was how good his scrambling was. His grappling mm-hmm. in that fight is brilliant. Like, bearing in mind, like, we all know the Dagestanis have that cheat code when it comes to their wrestling. Mm-hmm. And like, I know he was working with Craig Jones going into the fight, so that might have played a little bit of a sort of 
an X-Factor on his part. But he was holding his own against Markachev and causing him problems even in the wrestling. He he looked so incredible in that fight. It I, I, I saw this I saw people mention this. Even if they agreed with the decision, they said, Yeah, Islam won the fight, but Volkanovsky won the war of who's better. And I'm like, Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Like I can agree with it. Like I even it, like when we did the like post fight recap, I even called it if Volk loses but wins. Yeah. Like he he his stock rose from losing, and Islam's kind of hurt. It took a hit because he looked human for the first time in his career, outside of like that crazy wheel kick. Like he looked human, or he wasn't wheel kicked. It was um he got finished by uh, Martins. Yeah, Adriano Martins. But outside of like he looked human for the first time in years, and Volkanovski came, like came out with his hands raised at the end of the fight, just. Wild, wild fight. Probably my fight of the year still, but... He does, though, face, in my opinion, an intriguing threat going into this fight, which is Yair Rodriguez, 15-3 and record, the UFC interim champion. He did so by beating Josh Emmett, UFC 284. Same card that Volkanovski was on. I want to talk about this Yair as the interim champion, though, because I mentioned before we did the video on the main channel about the Mexican takeover, about the three Mexican mm. champions in three months. And one of the criticisms that people threw at it was they didn't consider Yair to be a real champion. Firstly, because there's a statue issue when it comes to the interim belt. They, did, they thought Josh Emmett was a bit of an unworthy opponent to beat to warrant it. Um... Where, where do you personally stand on that? Because I, in my personal opinion, I get the criticisms of an interim belt. Mm-hmm. But you've got to remember, Volkanovski was going to be fighting Markachev for the lightweight belt. There was probably going to be a good chance that he was going to stay at lightweight if he won. Mm-hmm. So the UFC seldom like having vacant belts. All they would have done was promote Yair to main champion. I think it's a lot more warranted an interim belt than, say... Colby versus RDA. Yeah, absolutely. I think interim belts are a case-by-case thing. As a whole, I typically think if you're an interim champion, and I, I'm so sorry, Carlos Condit, um, if you're an interim champion, I don't consider you a champion. That said, he is as close to a real champion as you can get. So I, I don't consider him as the third Mexican champion because I just have, you know, I just, you know, not a big fan of interim belts, but for what was going to happen if Volkanovski won that fight, if one judge changed their mind in history, right, then Yair is the featherweight champion, and he is the champion. It's weird how thin that line is for me, and I'm willing to admit that, but um, I think he's as close as you can get. He's the most deserving interim champion ever, and I love Carlos Condit, but it's him. Like, he... He deserves this. He deserves the accolades. And uh, I'm glad that they're helping him with his billing. As I, I'm glad they're billing it as champion versus champion. While I disagree, that's a great honor and accolade to be given. And he deserves it, you know, because I don't think there's anything wrong with his opponent. That's not fair. Josh Emmett, absolutely. He had the winning streak. Yeah. And he was the fresh blood that neither Max Holloway or Volkanovsky had fought. So he was the most interesting guy as a title challenger 
because you and me talked about it going into the trilogy fight, which was the fight before the Islam fight. Like, so he he had the winning streak, he had the momentum. Yair just looked incredible against him, and then Taporia, who's killing everybody, beat him. So it's like a hindsight; it looks worse, but that's not the case at all. I I, I think I think Yair is incredibly deserving. And a really awkward matchup for Volkanovski here. I'm in a similar boat. Like, personally, I do think Volkanovski is going to get it done. But mm-hmm. I do think that Yair Rodriguez poses a lot of weapons that could give Volk a lot of problems. And the big one we need to start off with, this guy may be one of the best kickers in the UFC. Yeah. He is like a buzzsaw. He, he is an incredible kicker and a varied kicker. Like, so Krokop is probably my pick for the best kicker of all time in MMA. But Krokop was going to throw three types of kicks at you and call it a day. He's going to throw roundhouses. Uh, he might throw a roundhouse to the leg because it was just mostly going to the body and head. And then occasionally, if he's feeling himself, he's going to throw an axe kick. That's it. Yair, he cheated in like the UFC games and gave himself every kick technique in the game. And he just has fun. Like, he looks like... He fights like, you know, you're playing the old wrestling games and you make your character and you just give yourself every one of Tajiri's kicks and every cruiserweight kick ever. It's awesome. It, as a fan of kicks, he is very fun to watch. Um, but he's he's also really smart. He's a lot smarter and more, much, much yes. more mature nowadays. So a lot of straight kicks, a lot of... Straight kicks to the legs and to the body, and good low kicks as well. And I think for the movement-based spy, uh, Volkanovski, you know, he can fight you any way he wants because he's uh, he uses his footwork to get whatever he wants. It's kind of similar to fighting like Frankie Edgar back in the day. Is Frankie going to box me up or is he going to take me down? And Volkanovski's kind of similar, obviously probably a much more technical version of that. So kicking at the legs of the footwork-based fighter is a fantastic move, especially when you're the longer fighter as well. You know, being longer, taking away his mo- your opponent's movement so you can establish your range and make it that much more. Oh, it, this is an awkward one. And against a shorter opponent, the head kick becomes a more potent weapon. It's bad. So someone who also uses a ton of head movement as well. So he could duck into a head kick and, and or worse, not had not use his head movement because he's afraid of ducking into that head kick. That's how um, Edson Barbosa fought Ross Pearson. That's how Dan Hooker caught Ross Pearson, who might have one of the most underrated head movement games in MMA history. And it's it's always interesting seeing how strikers try and take that away from him. And this is this could be a similar case. This is a scary fight. This fight this fight should have like almost slightly in Volkanovski's favor, but razor thin close odds, in my opinion. There's value for money. I think at what plus three fifty. Yeah. There's value for money in a in a Yair Rodriguez win. I think what oh, could yeah. be an X factor though is if you look at the people who've beaten Yair Rodriguez. Like I'm not sure about his first loss. I think that happened on the regional scene. But the other two losses, mm. Frankie Edgar. Now Yair, I have to stress, Yair Rodriguez was what 24 years old in a number Mm -hmm. one contender match against Frankie Edgar. And you could tell he wasn't ready for it. And Edgar just took him down 
and mangled him on the ground. Yeah, his the, biggest win before that was BJ Penn, so he wasn't ready at all for that fight. And the other one was Max Holloway. And we all know what a fantastic striker Max Holloway is. Yaya spooked Max so much, he resorted to grappling. Mm. And it makes me think that Volkanovski, even though I feel Volkanovski has the tools to beat Yaya Rodriguez on the feet, I can see him going grappling heavy. Yeah. Uh, and that brings me to my next terrifying part of this fight. As a Volkanovski fan, I am shooketh for him. Um, because I, I, you know, everyone loves this moment. It's one of my favorite fights ever. It's a fantastic fight, the Brian Ortega fight. Yes. Um, so everyone, uh, I want to stress this for, for people, because uh, I've seen this on Twitter, is just because you escaped two of the tightest and scariest submissions from what from probably the best jujitsu guy in the division does not automatically make you immune from submissions from lesser grapplers. And Yair has a very active and yes. tricky guard. So I, I look at it this way. There are guys that have lost by decision, but Damian Maya decisioned, who's probably the best jiu-jitsu guy in MMA history. Same with like Jacare. There's guys, Jacare didn't finish on the ground, but got submitted by like, you know, and out grappled and tapped out by some other guy who's much worse. Um, Yair is very tricky and has caught very good grapplers in very precarious situations. Like obviously it was an injury that forced the Brian Ortega loss. It wasn't the submission, but he did catch him in it. I think he was breaking the arm regardless or the, like, but before the shoulder popped out, um, it's, so it's scary if he takes him down and gets comfortable on the ground and gets put into that precarious position again. Uh, I expect Volk to win, but Yair is going to have me on the edge of my seat. You know, hopefully he doesn't make me a sad man, but uh, I, I think Volk is going to win. But it's this is this is probably the hardest matchup you can give Volkanovski. I think in both divisions, it's just the style of Yair Rodriguez that causes him problems. I think that yeah. another avenue I think that Volkanovski could take is that. We know that Yair likes to work in a lot of space to try and get off those kicks. I can mm-hmm. see Volkanovski trying to close the distance, try and get into boxing range, because I think if Yair does have yeah. a, a sort of big weakness, it's when it comes to sort of like the boxing range and especially moving backwards, putting a lot of pressure with him. And I can see Volkanovski maybe taking that kind of approach. Another mm-hmm. factor we need to take into account as well, and I'm going to blame Luke Thomas for this, because ever since he said this, it's being in my mind all the time. The 35 curse. Now, Alex Volkanovsky isn't there yet, but he is 34. Do we need to start thinking, is this guy maybe starting to slow down a little bit? The Markachev fight was a hard-working war. He did get dropped at times in that fight. Is that something to maybe play into account? I don't think he has the mileage, but it's going to be a factor in a couple years, I think. Which God, is, I really hope so. That that it, I I never thought about. He is thirty four. He's coming up on that. And I mean, like again, Luke Thomas just brought it up, and it's something that I'm just thinking of all the time. I'm looking at fighters who are around that sort of thirty three, thirty four range at the top of the game, and I'm erring on the side of caution a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of worrying. How old is Connor though? I I'm, I, I think Connor might be thirty four. <laughs> couldn't help. 
Okay. One more year, right? Um, <laughs> I am such a hater. I'm we, surprised we have, I have we have, upset, we have upset John Jones fans and Conor McGregor fans on this show. The downvotes are going to be massive for this video. Valentina, you're taking everything I work for. I'm coming. Like, yeah, she's next. Um, I've actually, I've definitely already done that before. Because uh, I said, I really, because I, I th we both said, oh, maybe Valentina will lose one day. And then she did. And people got, a, and we got real quiet. <laughs> but no, all respect to fans of everyone's, you know, it's totally, you know, I got nothing against the fans at all of uh, fighters. I dislike, I just dislike the fighters, not the fans. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm such a hater. Uh, but yeah, I, this one's crazy. This fight's crazy. This card is nuts. Uh, as we've been talking about it, I'm just like going, I'm so excited. I think I'm taking off work just to watch it with nothing, no distractions, just glued to that TV. Are you but, going to be brave enough to pick Yair to win this? No, I can't. Oh, that's that's the thing you brought up that I really liked. You, you mentioned closing into the boxing range. And in my opinion, and now I'm not, like, I, I like to think of myself as technically minded, but I wouldn't consider myself like at the level to coach. Uh, I think I'm a decent analyst when it comes to the techniques and stuff. But I, I, I think there is a plan that you always things that you can do against certain kind of fighters. And one of the one of the rules I have for kickers is you kick him back. You jam the airways with your legs so he can't kick you. So Volkanovski has really good low kicks. Yes. I could see him kicking back. And also you pressure a kicker into stepping backwards. So they don't, so if they kick, they're much more off balance. It's much more awkward. And Yair already hates punching off his back foot. Um, and I think you can do that. Another way of doing it is the low center of gravity, taller guy. If you get a hold of him, it's really easy to get underneath him and just kind of control him. I don't want him to do this, but Volkanovsky, if you're really in trouble, you can break in case of you know emergency, and you can holly home him for five rounds. I think that is definitely an avenue for victory. Let's it's hope just he doesn't do that. I really hope not, because this card would, it would this card is so good, and this fight is so awesome. But I think if he has to, technically that's a way to do it. But gonna... I, I, I I expect him to kind of bully him, uh, but in a very close but clear winning fight for Volkanovski. Because you're going to be getting 25 minutes of Holly Holm in the week after. 50 minutes of Holly Holm? 25 minutes. No, but like if Folk did it too, that's 50 minutes in two weeks of Holly oh. Holm. Oh, man. We're going to have to talk about my raise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, nah. but yeah, it's... um, Yeah, oh, God. that's Now I'm thinking about that fight. What I do for the recaps. Um, <laughs> but... No, this fight's fantastic. I think if you're leaning towards that year, I I got nothing wrong with that. But I'm picking Volk, and I I don't think I think it's I think writing off Yair in this fight is kind of dumb. I I don't like that at all. Yeah. I think this fight is much much closer than expected. I'm in the same boat. I'm going to go Volkanovski decision. I do mm -hmm. think that Yair has X factors that could cause Volkanovski problems. Um, mm -hmm. But I am going to play it safe for this one. What I would be interested to see, though, is what Volkanovski would do next if he was to win. Because mm. 
I don't think the appetite's there for a fourth Max fight. I know that Max is going to be fighting the zombie, which feels a bit like a stay-busy fight. I do think there's appetite to fight Markachev, but I don't know. I don't think it would be fair for the lightweight division to run that fight back again, especially straight away. Um, mm. are you possibly I think it's Taporia. I think it's Taporia. And if he, yeah, I think it's Taporia. And if Volkanovski was to beat Taporia after beating Rodriguez, as much as I love Jose Aldo, we need to start having that conversation. Yeah, he'd be. Uh, he's my number two, right, or I think Volk's my number three or two right now. It's really hard, but my clear number one is still Aldo. But if he beats Yair and then Zaporia, uh, that's going to be a really sad conversation for me. Unless he's still laundering money, then it won't be a sad. But <laughs> what my heroes do in retirement is just always so painful. Thank you to Boss Rudin for still being a saint. Um, but yeah. He he's climbing up that rank. I think it's Taporia next, and I think that sounds awesome because they're almost like clones of each other, like in a way. Like one's just slightly more aggressive and younger. I think that's kind of funny. But um, oh, that fight sounds great too. Uh, Taporia Yair even sounds amazing. But um, featherweight's featherweight's getting good again. I'm happy because it was a little bit of a slow period for a while, but. Um, I'm really looking forward to this, but this fights. I, I want. I'm curious what happens too, but I think it is Taporia. And we can look forward to that when it's going to be taking place next week. Um, UFC 290, T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. Definitely the high point of what promises to be a very difficult July when it comes to the UFC. A lot of these Apex cards, and I think the London show is not really all that appealing to me as well. So this is definitely sort of like the the rose and the thorns, as it were. Who's headlining the London card? Uh, Aspinall and Ty Bura. Really? Core main, Julius Dolyarenko. That's right. What are they doing to you guys? I've actually heard... Last time they showed up for us. Go ahead. I've actually heard that they've actually had to lower tickets because the sales have been that low. I saw that this morning. I think you were talking about it. It's like, yeah, don't make a bad product that, so we can care about it. Like, I, the last time they came to Oklahoma, we had RDA and Benson Henderson. Like, wasn't like, it Kevin I mean, Lee and Chiesa? Oh, no. Yeah, that's right. It was Kevin Lee and Chiesa because um, he DDT'd him in that 50 50, you know, and uh, as Tony Ferguson once said, and someone pooped in the cage. <laughs> oh, that was, the yeah. Kish, that was the card that Kish was on. Yeah, Kish pooped in the cage, right? It wasn't her? Justine Kish did? Uh, Kish and, yeah, Felice Herrig. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's gross. It was really gross. I didn't go to that card. Uh, <laughs> glad yeah. I'm glad I didn't. Yeah, I'm glad I didn't. But uh, And then uh, apparently, apparently, I, I haven't watched the fight to see, but when um, <laughs> apparently when Johnny Hendricks gets knocked out by Tim Bosch in that, in that card, apparently the crowd cheered. <laughs> Cold. Oh no, poor dude. Um, it's your home state. But we're going to start winding things up here on the uh, preview show. So, Joe, um, before we set off, uh, where can people um, hear any of your thoughts and see more of you when it comes to the INC family? Well, if you want to check me out, uh, where I'm always doing my normal shtick of trying my hardest to make you laugh and have fun, 
while uh, talking about fight cards. I'm always on the recap show. I will be recording the main event or recapping the main event tonight. Um, and I will be recapping, of course, the pay-per-view next week. Or, well, it is Saturday, so technically you'll see this tomorrow. I would have already recapped it, I should say. In the future, I'll recap it. But, um, And I'm also on the main channel on the Retro Review series, where I, uh, you know, I probably my favorite thing to do on the channel. I love the podcast like or that we do with the preview show, but getting to do Retro Reviews, because I feel like I do more, is so sweet. It's so cool talking about eras of MMA and introducing fights to a younger fan base it's just so awesome. Like my, that pride episode is my baby. Yes. And so is making fun of, uh, Henry Cejudo and big headed guys like Tito Ortiz and Cejudo. Just, I have literally a sticky note of like 20 more insults for their big heads that I haven't used yet. And I can't wait. Um, but, uh, and also I'm on Twitter. You can catch me on Twitter at loco Joe seven, I believe he'll put the link in. <laughs> Carl will put the link in. Um, and uh, where I need to tweet more, I need to be more active. But uh, I'm always, you know, usually joking around or, you know, usually laughing at professional wrestling stuff on Twitter. That's typically what I do now. We are hoping to get a retro review out sometime this month. Fingers crossed. We have had some issues when it comes to um, trying to get somebody to uh, work with us, obviously, to become part of the INC family. So if you are interested in joining us, then please get in touch. Um, this one I do think is going to be, I'm really looking forward to doing this one. So hopefully I'll get the time to splice it all together. And from this point on, we'll hopefully try and get a retro review out every month, like as per our old schedule. We do have one yeah. which we are definitely going to be doing at some point later on in the year. We can't give too much away. But if you know your history, you should work out which one that is. On that note, oh, yeah. we're going to be uh, winding things up here. So this has been the UFC 290 preview show. My name has been Carl Bainbridge. That's been Joe Neal. We hope you enjoy UFC 290. And we're going to be back a little bit quicker than normal as we bring up UFC 291 Salt Lake City BMF belt on the line. Bye-bye for now.